This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, March 10th, 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. People with criminal records have rights, but criminal records are easily obtained, and those records can be used to disqualify someone from employment or housing. So what is the proper role of a rap sheet? James Jacobs is author of The Eternal Criminal Record. He spoke with Cato's Tim Lynch about his new book yesterday. This is uh, the first really wide-ranging book about uh, criminal records that has ever appeared. And I really try to get get a a big picture overview of all kinds of criminal records, where they come from, how they're constructed, how they're disseminated, who gets access to them, uh, how they're used, and how they're abused. Um, Along the way, I... Uh, stop on uh, many different policy uh, issues and choices we've taken and possible alternative uh, policies uh, that we might take in the future. You said you got into this research because of your earlier work on gun control. Can you explain that? In the 1990s, um, I was working on a book on gun control, and uh, a good part of that book was about the Brady law. The Brady law was passed in 1993, and a key uh, feature uh, of it uh, had to do with um, making it possible to to check people, uh, prospective gun purchasers' uh, records uh, to see if they were ineligible to purchase and possess a firearm. Because of the concern uh, that the Brady law not impose a waiting period, the gun rights um, advocates uh, put into the law, and they they got as part of the compromise package, uh, a requirement that that the FBI have up and running within five years a national insta check system that would enable the gun seller to determine in real time uh, immediately uh, whether the prospective purchaser had a disqualifying criminal record. That led to hundreds of millions of dollars being uh, pumped into uh, the states and localities to improve police records and court records. It enabled the system to actually uh, be Uh, implemented on time in 1998, and it left us with a huge, uh, hugely improved national integrated uh, criminal record system. So I thought at the time I was working on the gun control book that maybe that was the most uh, important contribution of the Brady Law. Now, the other thing that has happened in this area is a technological revolution with computers and accessibility so that police in California are able to easily access criminal records from Florida. Isn't that one of the big developments, one of the big changes we've seen in this area? It's really a a remarkable uh, development, and it's all part of of the uh, fallout from the Brady Law. It really started before that, but but it was given a great impetus by the Brady Law and the improvement of the record system and the improvement of the information technology so that any police officer anywhere in the United States could find out immediately whether somebody uh, uh, who they suspected of crime or someone who they arrested had ever been arrested anywhere at any time in the United States. 
So, I mean, that's a remarkable uh, system that we uh, we have now, and it's uh, uh, enormously efficient and helpful uh, for law enforcement. Right. A lot of people would say that's a good thing, isn't it? I think it's undoubtedly a good thing. It was a big concern to the President's Commission on Crime and the Administration of Justice in 1967 that we didn't have a integrated national uh, system and that uh, it, people were slipping through the cracks all the time. They couldn't trace fugitives. They did, people didn't know who they had just arrested and so forth. So this uh, was the culmination of a, of a wish list um, that had been pending for a long time. And it's, it's, a, it's a really outstanding achievement. But one of the, the downsides or uh, negative aspects of having such a system is erroneous information. You talk about that in your book a little bit. Tell us a little bit about those problems. Well, the, um, there, has, there has been a problem for uh, decades in getting the disposition of a arrest uh, onto uh, rap sheets. So the rap sheet will show that a person was arrested for uh, homicide or arrested for kidnapping or something. But, but um, when the, when the uh, police or a judge uh, looks it up, they won't see what happened or prosecutor. They wouldn't see uh, how the case was resolved. Was it resolved by being dismissed? Was it resolved by a plea bargain? Was it resolved by a conviction? So um, we're still uh, f- fighting that battle of trying to get dispositions placed on rap sheets. It, we could debate whether how big a problem it is because within the criminal justice system, uh, <coughs> excuse me, it's arguably not that big a problem. I mean, I, I can say that not being the person who was uh, wrongly arrested. I mean, a person might be arrested and might say that the, the prior case, he's not a fugitive or he's not on probation, and it might take uh, some hours to to uh, confirm that, but eventually they can confirm that, um, and so the problem isn't isn't tremendous. The problem is much greater when other kinds of institutions are are relying on the uh, on the rap sheet system, and they cannot confirm what happened uh, in that earlier case. Another issue that's arisen in this area is that we have a lot of private vendors that are purchasing court information and law enforcement information, and then they are turning around and making their services available to other private firms to offer background check information and this sort of thing. Um, Tell us a little bit about that, how useful these services are. Is there a dark side to these services? The, they're, they're, the information revolution has led to the computerization of court records um, and to the computerization of the indexes to court records and the scanning of court records. Uh, private companies, background checking companies have emerged all over the place, and some of them were already existing uh, organizations that did credit uh, checks, and they've added criminal background checks as well. Uh, mostly, they get their information from court records. They either scan uh, particular records in, in carrying out uh, searches for which they're commissioned, or they just download in, in bulk all of the records uh, from particular courts. Um, whether this is a problem or not uh, depends upon uh, where you view it from. On the one hand, it 
it is an advantage that that uh, information is much more available. It's much more transparent. Um, it might have been the case uh, decades ago that you'd have to hire a private detective to go and search the records. It was expensive and laborious. Um, and therefore, you might not have found out uh, relevant information about someone who you were planning to hire or rent to or go into business with. Uh, now that information is very easily uh, retrieved and employers and landlords and businesses um, use it all the time. So it's now, uh, now standard. We, you know, from the standpoint of a business, it gives them more information to base their hiring decisions and their investment decisions on. But from the standpoint of the record subject, um, it has very de deleterious results because their uh, history, their criminal history, is now so much more exposed um, and public than it was uh, in the past. We hear a lot these days about the problem of mass incarceration. And here in Washington, D.C., we one of the buzzwords is reentry, And that refers to the idea that close to a half a million people each year are leaving prisons to return to the community. And so there's lots of discussion about reentry and trying to make this transition for all these people that are returning so that they can enter the mainstream economy. And so one of the obstacles is the fact that they have just served prison and do have a criminal record. And so there's an effort underway uh, to do something about that. It's called ban the box. And that kind of would prohibit private employers from asking unemployment applications, whether or not somebody has a criminal record. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yes. I mean, the ban the box um, movement is very interesting, and uh, it, it has a lot of very, very uh, vigorous uh, proponents. It actually focuses on public employers uh, more than on private employers. And the idea was to sign up public employers. I think it began in San Francisco. Um, who would who uh, and they passed an ordinance saying that uh, they would remove the question about prior criminal history from employment uh, the employment application to the to the city and also to the county and uh, but but it wasn't that they would deny the public employer that information altogether. The idea was that you wouldn't ask the question, you'd remove the box, and only after um, you had identified a person as uh, as uh, employable and that you wanted to make the the hire, you could you would then do a uh, background check to see if there was any reason not to hire them. And so the argument was that at that point in the process, you would see the the criminal history in a much uh, a f better light, a much fairer light. You would already have focused on the positives about the person and then looking at their criminal record to see, well, is, does that change my mind? But at least the person has gotten their foot in the door. That uh, movement, the Ban the Box movement, has been... Uh, um, adopted in, in the ban the box uh, has been has been been embraced by uh, municipalities and and by states uh, so that there are dozens of laws uh, on that um, all over the uh, country so it's it's been really quite successful in, in, in as a legal movement we don't really know how many people this has ended up uh, helping uh, I've seen no evaluation uh, studies of this. 
And we have to remember that the ban the box really only helps people who are work ready, who have some background of employment and who who came to the top of the employment applicant reservoir of applicants when they applied. And uh, we don't know how many people it applies to, but it, it will have applied to some. So it will clearly have been some benefit, but how much benefit, we don't know. Now, Ban the Boxes, you point out, has started out with uh, government hiring practices, but there's also an effort to extend that to private sector employment as well. Uh, is that a good idea? Well, I'm not in favor of... Uh, of of uh, prohibiting uh, private employers from looking at information um, about their employees. So I don't think we should equate uh, a criminal background with the, um, with, with the prohibited uh, 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 characteristics like race and religion uh, and gender. So uh, I think employers should uh, – private employers are putting their own uh, money and resources and reputations on the line. I think they, they should be free to make their hiring decisions uh, uh, as they see fit with the caveats that they can't discriminate on, on race and religious uh, grounds. They could certainly be encouraged to give people a second uh, chance. And I think if government were to be, to be successful in – in liberalizing its uh, hiring practices so as not to discriminate so uh, so much against ex-offenders, um, that might have a payoff and a lesson for private employers. In addition, uh, I should say there are a lot of, uh, of NGOs uh, out there who work with private employers to help people with criminal records get a, uh, get a job. And those NGOs, uh, as far as I know, always disclose to the private employer, look, we have a person here, he has a history, but we've been working with him and we have reason to believe that he's turning his life around. And uh, if you hire him, we will not just drop him and drop you, but we will continue to work with both of you to make sure that this goes well. I prefer that uh, as a model for the uh, private sector. Isn't another problem that a private employer would be exposed to possible lawsuits if they do not look at the potential people that are coming into their workplace? If there's workplace violence, then the victim of workplace violence might be able to sue an employer by not doing enough due diligence to find out, look, they brought this violent criminal, perhaps a rapist, into the workplace. And so the, the employer is partly responsible for the crime that happened to another one of its employees. Don't employers have to be mindful of this lawsuit exposure? Uh, they absolutely do. And uh, there is a tort uh, suit that is developed called and a theory called negligent hiring in which a victim of uh, could could sue a employer whose employee um, had a criminal record um, and uh, the employer didn't didn't check it or hired the person despite the criminal record and they went on to uh, repeat their crime but even without 
the negligent hiring uh, uh, tort action, uh, employers are strictly liable under the tort doctrine of respondeat superior, the liability of a of a uh, employer for all of the tortious acts of their employees that are committed while the employee is in is in the engaged in the service of the employer. So that if you're an employer, you're going to worry about whether your employees are reliable and self-disciplined and. Uh, and honest, uh, because they they can uh, end up costing the employer a tremendous amount of money, and not just money. Here, the employer has to be concerned about the their other employees, uh, the clients of their company, the reputation of their company, uh, and so forth. It doesn't seem to me to be at all unreasonable that an employer uh, would prefer to hire to hire people who have a solid history of honesty, integrity, uh, reliability, and self-discipline. It just uh, it makes good business sense, and it, it makes good sense from the standpoint of uh, of looking after your employees and customers. One of the ideas that you advance in your book is the idea that we should move towards treating or developing a score that companies are now using to rate somebody's creditworthiness and uh, financial history. Uh, we have the FICO score in that context, and you say we should develop something similar with respect to somebody's uh, criminal record. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, I mean, I think that would be a very good idea. We. Um we, we, we haven't moved much at all in that direction. I don't know of any serious effort to do that. But when you think about a credit score, um, they are easily understood. I think they range from 200 to 800. And, and 800 is the best score you could have. And 700 is very high. They're easily digestible by employers um, and uh, banks and uh, and so forth, and they can compare one person's uh, a score to another's. When it comes to criminal records, it's like we throw the raw data at the employer and say, well, here's here's a, his whole history on this, on this year he was arrested and this year he was pled guilty to this and that and so forth. And you know, the employer is not in a, a very good position to know what what this means for the future. Another issue about criminal records is that our our crimes in most states are very general. So the fact that a person was arrested and convicted, let's say, of assault, it doesn't tell you what kind of an assault it was or what kind of a burglary it was. And, and of course, these crimes range in, uh, o, o, and vary in terms of their seriousness and their threats to, uh, to people and so forth. So... In some ways, we need we need more information out there uh, rather than less information. Or maybe I should say we need better information. The information that we now have about uh, prior criminal history is very crude. What's imp an important point that comes through in the book is that there is a connection between the use of criminal records in the criminal justice system and the use of criminal records uh, outside the criminal justice system in employment, uh, in, in uh, renting, in adoptions, in, in, in so many different contexts. 
So while there's a there is a big movement uh, going on now, a powerful movement to try to hide criminal records or to blunt their effectiveness outside the criminal justice system. Um, there is not really such it is not a similar movement about uh, hiding them or blunting their influence within the criminal justice system. In fact, quite the contrary. Uh, we think of, of a criminal history as being a crucial factor in in how we make decisions about people at every stage of the criminal justice process, from whether they should be arrested to whether they should be charged to what should be charged to how the case should be plea bargained to whether they should be um, put on bail and and uh, tried to, and, and held in pretrial detention or released uh, to sentencing and so forth. And we think it's the most natural thing in the world all through the system to treat criminal record as predictive of future misconduct. Um, and then we uh, switching hats, we, we talk about the private sector and we have many proponents of uh, uh, doing something to help ex-offenders who argue that, that, that a past criminal record is not, re- is not a relevant indicator of character nor a relevant uh, predictor of future behavior. And I, I think that that, that, is, uh, that, that, that that contradiction needs to be uh, faced up to. It can't be right in both ways. James Jacobs is author of The Eternal Criminal Record. You can read more on ways to fix our broken criminal justice system at Cato.org.